So welcome back to Leaders in Consulting, the show that brings you interviews with experts in the trench, sharing their own perspectives, tips and resources they picked up along the way for your benefit. On this episode, we're joined by Matt Church, who is a leadership educator and the founder of Thought Leaders Movement, with over 15 books published on the topic of uh, thought leadership and other topics we'll hear about, uh, which are actually all available to download for free on his website. Uh, he's a highly in-demand public speaker, and I'm very pleased to have him on the show. So welcome. Hey, Jonathan. Yeah, it's an honor to be here. And hello to everybody who's listening. Thanks for your time. Fantastic. Great to have you on. Uh, so, Matt, why don't we get started with a unique approach tip tool or strategy that you think that other consultants uh, should really know about? And maybe they don't yet. <laughs> Well, I I think that a lot of consultants, so I'm going to talk about a business model and then a tool. I think what a lot of consultants do is they want to leverage either a process or some people. And I'm going to suggest that leveraging perspectives is the um, high value return on investment. So when, you know, you can leverage people by having consultants downline that you manage, you can leverage process by deploying a process, say, in organisation or in system and, and charge for that process. And, you know, Gallup might do that with strengths finding. But when you leverage perspective, what you end up being is a category of one. You end up being a unique subject matter expert. And for a lot of consultants, this is the third choice that they don't consider. They consider, you know, that the only leverage they've got is leveraging people or process. And I think when you leverage insights and perspective, you can charge a lot more that your impact moments are shorter. So in other words, it takes you less time per engagement. But the, the consequence is that you, you get, you are not owning as much of the process of change that a consultant might like to change. So, you know, they're all choices. And I reckon understanding the focus on perspectives is a choice for leverage. And we call that like thought leadership. So, uh, which obviously is a ubiquitous term that's uh, been around for decades. Yeah, that's our take on that. And if you are going to leverage perspectives, you need to understand how to capture, package, and deliver perspective better. And that's like if you said, what's the framework or the tool? Our pink sheet process. Uh, all my books are like jelly babies and jelly beans. You can download them, at, but they're color-coded. So that would be to download the pink book. Um, that's all you need to remember, but it's called Think, and it's about how to capture perspective. And I think that's a really cool place for consultants to start when they're looking at not just leveraging people, not just leveraging process, but actually leveraging perspective. Yeah, I think it's the uh, the pink sheet process I'm most familiar with uh, in your work. And uh, for those, but for those that aren't uh, so familiar with the process, can you kind of describe it at a high level? What's what's involved? Yeah. So I'll talk about leverage and then I'll go high level. If you develop intellectual property and you develop it in project or in situ or or with a client in mind, what happens is your intellectual property gets baked in to that experience. So an example might be if you write intellectual property as a workshop, then you can only deliver it as a workshop. But if you can capture your insights and your intellectual property in a delivery agnostic way. In other words, whether it's it's not written for a book, it's not designed for a training workshop, it's not designed for a strategic retreat offsite. If you design it as a portable insight, independent of delivery mode, you get the leverage of think once, sell often, or think once, deliver often. And that's not a habit we have. We often, we often develop our intellectual property in conversation with client or in 
sort of baked into the way we're delivering it, like the strategic report or something of the sort. And if you can step back, what you do is you get the leverage of insight. So if you are selling perspectives, you want to capture them, what I what we call mode agnostic. Um, so it doesn't matter what mode of delivery. And then to do that, uh, you've then got to understand the anatomy of the idea and what is the structure of an insight or an idea. And so a lot of people think of ideas in written form or spoken form. And I go, no, 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 come back to the conceptual form. And that the conceptual form of an idea, you know, kind of has dimensions. It's kind of got three dimensions. There's the stuff we say, there's the all right, there's the point we're making around that. And there's the big picture that that sits in. And that you can represent that from like left brain perspectives and right brain perspectives. So the ping sheet is a mapping tool. It's an intellectual property snapshot where you get to map, catalog, capture, shape, develop ideas so that they then become intellectual property, much like commercial property or residential property. They become assets that perspective-based consultants can use and sell and trade. And But the habit is a habit of thinking before application, which is challenging for most people. But once you get used to it, it's just like you're used to running and now you've got to learn to swim. You just get used to it um, and it becomes a, a new way of thinking. Yeah. Uh, One of the things that appeals to me about it as well is uh, everybody has, you know, different ways of, you know, fully understanding ideas or or receiving them. Some people are more analytical and they love the data and they love the numbers. Other people love stories. Uh, Other people really are are really helped by having a metaphor or some sort of model. And I like how your, your process plays into all of that. And sometimes I think when we come up with ideas, we might we might just focus on one of those, but I think it's good to kind of zoom out and think, wait, wait a minute, how can this actually be applied to all these other areas as well? Well, that's the, that's the leverage opportunity, right? Like um, in classic behavioral flexibility is the key to leadership. So thought leadership has thoughts, insights, perspectives, and leadership uh, to it. So, so you're speaking to that wonderful capability that Carl Jung talked about when he sort of jokingly said, not everybody's a failed attempt to be you. And, I love, I love that because it talks to that idea that just my preferences may not be yours. And there was um, out of Stanford and then towards the latter part of his career, Harvard, uh, Dr. Professor Howard Gardner did a lot of work on student-centred learning. And he was looking at that idea of um, what it means to put a student at the centre of your learning and develop behavioural flexibility in that process. So he's, uh, you know, visual, auditory, kinesthetic, uh, sort of some of the grounding ways. And we know that Bandler and Grindler from neurolinguistic programming fame sort of took that work and expanded on it. But he also talks about like people who are numerate, they like lists, people who are linguistic, they like language distinctions, people who are interpersonal, who like case studies and examples. And they were like the, the intermediate learners. So the sensory stuff is beginners. And he went on to say that the advanced learners like abstract needs, which is what you talk to with metaphor and referencing, existential needs, which is what is your primary overarching context, and intrapersonal needs, which is that, you know, what's in it for me? Like, And he talks about um, that in a classroom for either pedagogy or andragogy, so children or adult learning, you want to develop um flexibility in how you engage and you create the conditions for people to engage with ideas. And I think that speaks to what you talked about, Jonathan, that idea of not everyone's the same. We're not all failed attempts to be each other. Yeah. 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 It's, it's something I, I have to 
keep reminding myself that not everyone likes to be communicated to in the exact same way. Um, like what one thing I ran into is uh, one of the things I, I tend to like to do is send you know video explanations. I'll record a Loom video, and yeah. you know subsequent to a call, I might you know send an explanation or a follow up answer to to a question. Uh, but one thing I noticed with one of my clients is I could see on the analytics they weren't watching any of the videos, which I just found utterly confusing. Like everybody loves my videos. Yeah. <laughs> They're intimate, they're personal, they're asynchronous. You can do them just for you, just in time, just when you want. It sounds perfect, right? Yeah. But when I spoke to them afterwards about it, they were, you know, I just sort of, you know, politely mentioned, uh, I noticed, you know, the, um, are, are those videos working for you? And they're like, no, sorry, really, I just can't do the video thing. That's just, I, you know, they just have difficulty concentrating on something like that. So, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I like yeah. to, I'm very aware that the nuance of in-time communication is a definite preference for some. Yeah. And yeah. you can see this with things like um, blended learning. So a lot of, you know, perspective-based consultants have created video libraries of intellectual property. And the idea is that almost like the Khan Academy's flipped classroom where the idea is, is the kids watch the videos at night, like the lesson, and then that's their homework. And then instead of doing homework at home, they come in and do the homework in the classroom with supervision of peers and teachers, right, which is a wonderful flipped idea. And Salman Khan and the Khan Academy, you know, received the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, uh, you know, investment uh, a number of years ago to sort of try and revolutionise classroom learning. And any parent who's ever done kids' homework uh, with them at night, you know, why am I doing this? Surely we should have the kids watch, you know, let's watch the video and have a conversation. Sure, happy to watch a video and have a conversation with the kid and participate in their learning as a parent. But surely the breakthrough moments, say on maths and understanding how integers work, should be done in classroom with the maths teacher. So, so this the problem is a lot of consultants then record content, they'll put it on Teachable or Thinkific or Mighty Networks as a, as a resource library. But the busy corporate executives they're trying to help with don't have any time to watch it. And so we've seen that the blend of synchronous and asynchronous and getting that blend right. So you and I are currently synchronous. We're in time at the same time talking. But people consuming this podcast are going to do it asynchronously. And we actually leverage that in our consulting model because we charge premiums for synchronous in-person. And you'll see that what we do is then the things that people are trying to make money out of, which is make money in your pajamas with online learning and things like that. We're like, nah, we give that away for free because we're not in the $20 transaction or the $200 transaction. We're in the $200,000 transaction. So we're more interested in charging premium for lived experiences um, as opposed to trying to uh, leverage the perspectives in content libraries. Now, <clears throat> that might change over time, but content gating, if you look at, say, The Guardian or New York Times, they're really struggling. These big legacy media companies are struggling to figure out how to monetize their model because content's free, right? Like all of us are expecting we should be able to, and the minute they content gate a New York Times article, geez, you've got to really like the really like the journalists um, and you'll probably end up going, you know what, I'll go to the Atlantic because, uh, and if I'm going to pay for a subscription, I'll pay over there because it's not got an agenda um, apparently. So, you know, there's all sorts of things starting to affect the, if you do choose perspective and insights as your leverage model, you've then got to start playing into what Chris Anderson, um, the commissioning editor of Wired uh, calls the freemium model and uh, what happens when insights are free 
Uh, and so what a lot of consultants do is the insights are their content marketing. And then what happens is the process and people leverage is their commercial model. And what we do is we flip that. We go, no, no, no. The, the, uh, so we use insights to generate a relationship over time. We get people on the other side of a commitment gate of some kind. Generally, we get them off social media like LinkedIn and into a, an embedded communication. And then from there, we begin a process of how can we help you? Um, here's a book. Would you like to read it? And then they get the whole book. And then at the end of it, we go, hey, the, you can learn everything if you want. It's only $1,500 and people then learn it. And then people start stepping into a more committed process. So we we find ourselves in the business, not of content, even though we're insight marketers, but we're in the business of commitment and escalating commitments and levels of engagement and relationship. And yeah, such a fascinating uh, yeah. place. We could talk so, for hours on that, Jonathan. So I suppose that I'm guessing that's where the, you know, you're, you're how your books are all free on your website that's where the thinking comes from i'm curious like when you when you first started doing that was it an experiment or is it something that you intentionally did at the very start i'm curious how that came about well there's a question i love if you were to do an innovation degree like a master's in innovation or possibly an mba you can imagine the professor and any i imagine many of your audience have so you're sitting in a lecture and the professor puts up a picture of a drill and she shows you this drill and says, what business are you in? And, uh, you know, you'll, you can imagine student responses. We're in the hardware business. Um, you go, we're in the customer service business. We're in construction business. But the point she's trying to get to is you're in the business of making holes. And if someone comes up with a better way to make holes, stop selling drills. So the question I think consultants can always ask is what business are they in? And there's more than one answer to this. You know, James Dyson might have said he was in the suction business until iRobot and iRoomba came along and, you know, became the laziness business with their um, sort of robots that vacuum your floor without you even trying. And when, you know, uh, Josh Rich uh, started a bank um, called Simple, which is dedicated to 25-year-olds, and instead of being in the business of holding money and charging you for the privilege, he said, we're in the business of enabling lifestyle goals for 20-somethings. And so he's, instead of a bank balance on the app, it shows what's safe to spend because they figure out, you know, how much you earn, how much you spend with three simple questions and what you want to achieve. And based on that, they're able to say, you've got 3000 in your bank account, Jenna, but you've only got 700 that's safe to spend if you're going to realise your lifestyle goals. Because he's in the business of enabling the lifestyle goals of 25-year-olds. He's not in the business of holding money and charging for the privilege. And I think there's multiple answers, you know, that we can have to this question. And for me, when I read uh, Free by Chris Anderson, and he was talking about jazz musicians who would in Brazil who would put on a concert and someone would come along and record the concert live and then sell CDs outside because, you know, CDs are still sold in that part of the world. Um, and, and people go, what do you do? You know, and you go, well, you're not in the business of selling CDs as a jazz musician. How about you be in the business of concerts? And what they ended up doing was sending glass masters of the CDs to the pirates and bootleggers and saying, hey, if you're going to copy the session, why not? Don't stress yourself. Here's the glass master copy. And, and why don't you help us sell tickets to the concert? We're going to be there in six weeks and you get 50% of ticket sales. So they took the pirates and bootleggers and turned them into a marketing distribution arm and yeah. ended up making a ton of money touring. And it's about understanding what business you're in and answering that question. So I'm in the business of experiences, not ideas. So I capture ideas, I generate ideas, but I charge for experiences because you can take my ideas 
You can plagiarize my ideas, but good luck taking the experience that I generate with my clients. And that subtle shift was beautiful for me because I don't want, uh, and this was pre-print on demand, right? So pre-Amazon print on demand, because the best thing you can do is write a book print a thousand of them with gold leaf and leather bound and, you know, um, <laughs> you know, moleskin type ribbons as bookmarks and give that thousand away to people who are going to pay you 50 grand to 150 grand. So handwritten, exclusive delivered to the CEO of the high tech company that you're helping or whatever it might be. And then if people do want to buy them, just make it, let Amazon do the work. They print them and ship them and the quality is a bit flimsy, but it doesn't matter. And uh, you never have to then store books because I have written 15, uh, have had garages and storerooms full of them, and then end up in this fulfilment game of someone pays $22 and I've got to ship a book. I'm like, I found myself putting things in envelopes going, yeah, nah. <laughs> then I found myself paying staff to put things in envelopes. And I went, yeah, nah. And then I realized, what business do you want to be in? And I didn't want to be in the $22 business. I wanted to be in the $220,000 business, the $22,000 business. And yeah. we'll talk about the difference between the $22 business, which we are now, the $22,000 business versus the $220,000 business because they're interesting decisions there. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um and one of the themes I noticed about your work is um, uh, it seems as though you give a lot of importance to giving credit where it's due. Um, I'd love if you could tell us why you think that's so important. And um, also, is there any particular body of work that you most draw inspiration from or that's that's influenced you a lot that you'd like to mention? Yeah. Yeah, so plagiarism versus attribution. In the academy, so all of the academic environments, there's a strong history of managing plagiarism. Now, a huge part of that is because professors and PhDs, the currency is not money, um, which is why so many PhD people with PhDs are broke. The currency is credibility and status. And the more I publish, and, and the model of the academy, I think, is, is fundamentally flawed and broken. And we can see that in universities around the world where PhD students are being used and abused for um, to do the workload rather than paying tenured professors. But the model used to be that if I publish and I raise a bunch of students who publish with me, then my amount of published works lead to tenure. And if I have tenure, I'm then paid for the rest of my life to sit, think and teach and research. And that's a really good idea because it, it almost has... Um, a renaissance vibe because in Italy for about 100 years on 100 square miles, thanks to Catherine Medici, we had all of the teenage mutant ninja turtles. So all of the, you know, renaissance thinkers uh, did great work. And a big part of it is the Medici family patroned them. So their food was taken care of, their housing was taken care of, and these great renaissance thinkers, these polymaths could you know, paint chapels and do, you know, do work that mattered. They were like the ultimate creative consultant, but they weren't bound or, or constrained with they have to make a living. Um, there were some conditions, for example, the reason why so many Renaissance artists have painted these uh, unknown aristocrats is it was the ultimate selfie. So the Medici family would go, we'll get you a Raphael uh, portrait of you that you can hang in your house. And so Raphael would have to paint some aristocrat that want to get shoved up on a wall somewhere um, so that they could then go do the work that really, really mattered. So there was a still a quid quo pro because we all sometimes have to do, you know, sometimes work's just work. 
but the model doesn't have to always be um, bound in that space. Uh, now, so works that inspire me. Uh, so I think attribution, because the academy is based on a plagiaristic model, which is a little bit fear-based, which has a little bit of intellectual property protection to it. And I've had so many of my ideas taken, repackaged and sold by other people that you've just gone, I would spend my life in and out of um, trademarking, license, intellectual property disputes, like unbelievably so, from, from strangers through to commercially engaged business partners. So the, the insight game is if all you've got is your insight, um, you're, I think you're at risk. And I don't think you're unassailable. So that's why we're in the experience business, not just the idea business. But what attribution does is an attributive nature is actually what the academy was really about. It became that it has become about don't steal my idea. But what it was actually about, the original ideas were, you know, standing on the shoulders of giants. It was the idea of being able to go, because um, it's like as a, you, you can develop your ideas in a bunch of ways, right? And But one of them is to aggregate. It's a really powerful way to go. And this speaks to there's no such thing as an original idea. You go, here's what someone said. Here's what someone else said. Let me join the dots. And here's how I think that applies in the situation that we're working on. So what you're doing is going A plus B equals a better C for you. So aggregative thought leadership or aggregative sense making and pattern recognition and joining the dots is, is perspective consulting. It is, that is insight. And I think the habit of it attribution, which is to speak to source, where did that idea come from? Speak to source as often as possible, actually builds rigor and means you're an evidence-informed consultant as opposed to, I made up an idea, this is completely mine, and I'm going to defend it against the rest of the world, which is a fear-based model. So it's got abundance and honouring in it, and I think it's commercially smart because you become evidence-informed as opposed to scarcity, fear, and ending up in legal battles for the rest of your life because someone used the word limitless with leadership. And you go, I'm the limitless leadership person. How very dare you? And it's like, really? Is that the game you want to play? Because that's a race to the bottom, I think, based on command and control, top-down, scarcity, post-industrial thinking. Yeah. Gotcha. And I'm curious, like, do you think there are, uh, what, what are some good approaches or good ways of, uh, developing that, um, you know, that awareness, um, is like, you know, thinking back to academia, you know, literature review, um, maybe it's, you know, taking all the, you know, the, 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 the top books in the, in a particular field, uh, and just kind of picking out all the main ideas, um, maybe writing, you know, putting together blog post reviews of those or other, what, what other kinds of approaches do you yeah, look, developing intellectual property is a pro, a four-step, well, there is a framework that you could use. And if I, if you were if you were saying, look, I would like to be a thought leader, but I don't know where to start, I would say begin by curating work. So let's say you were interested in um, productivity and you're interested in personal and collective productivity and you were thinking this could be the area I could go to work in then I'd say, why don't you begin just by holding a space to curate 
all of the things that have ever been said on productivity. So Inbox Zero by Merlin Mann, it's sort of he's moved on and it's out of date. You go, that's super cool. Get Things Done by David Allen, you know, 18 Minutes, The Focus Books by Peter Bregman. Um, you might drop into a Covey first things first, then drop back to uh, an Eisenhower decision matrix. Uh, then you go you go into all of these spaces, right? And you just almost like um, uh, I, I don't, I'm not big on social media and I'm a little out of date as in, uh, so, I, so forgive me, but it's almost like, you know, if you think of Pinterest, the way Pinterest was set up was almost like mood boards. Like you go, hey, if you're in Chicago, here are the places to go. Um, and I reckon you could almost, you don't have to do it on Pinterest, but if you almost had that mindset that said, I'm using like mood boards just to go, I don't know, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? I think that's a great way to begin to own a category. So you begin by curating. The, the second thing you do is propagate. So you don't just curate all this stuff. You actually push some of it where you go, oh, I'm a big fan of and Gary Vaynerchuk's productivity strategy, which is get angry early or something like that. And, you, you know, you propagate and you push it out to the world. And I think what propagation does is it starts to give you um, voice through association, um, you know. Uh, yeah, so that's like the, the second step. Sort of like a halo effect. Yeah, totally right. Totally. The the third way is what we've already talked about, which is the aggregative nature. And I think these are an evolution. So curate stuff, propagate stuff, aggregate stuff, and then create stuff. And when you're creating stuff, say using the pink sheet process that's in the pink book, Think, that we've talked about already, what, what you often do, and we suggest people do this, is learn the methodology, you know, the anatomy of an idea and insight. Learn it by reading someone else's book. And, and then don't claim that as your idea. Actually package it up as exactly as you said, almost like a, a literature review that would that a PhD supervisor would ask you to do. In fact, I think if you're wanting to be expedient, though, what you would do is you'd go, I'm just going to pick three books or three experts or three points of view. And books are how they're still coded, even though bookstores are dead, books are still alive. I'm not sure how many people read books, but one of the things you would want to do as a perspective insight consultant or a thought leader is you would want to be in the business of consuming ideas, definitely as a habit. We consider that one of the primary um, weekly, daily jobs of an insight-based thought leader. And in fact, it's one of the attractions of doing it is you get paid to read and consume and think, which is wonderful. And certainly a joy for me. But as you're starting to do this this three-book process, we suggest that what you do is you get a classic bestseller in the category, so something that's more than 10 years old. You get a contemporary bestseller, which is something that's in the last five years or last three years, depending on how fast you think your category is moving, and then a current bestseller. So that's something that in the last three months has popped in your category. So let's say your category was productivity again. You would go through finding books that referenced, you know, older than 10 years, you know, three to five years and in the last three months. Um, And what you want to do is you want to read them through the lens because what happens is when an audience reads a book or a reader reads a book, they go, that's interesting. And they highlight something. When a teacher reads a book, they go, that's interesting. How would I share it? But when a perspective or a thought leader consultant reads a book, they read it and they go, that's interesting. What do I think about it? And pausing to think and is obviously the thought leader's job is about either contribution or contradiction. And I don't mean to be binary, but that's a good place to start where you go, how do I disagree with this? That's the contradiction. 
how do I contribute to this? So one is contradiction is, yeah, but, and contribution is, yeah, and, and you actually extend the line of thinking. And I think, I think that the, that's a good starting process for developing the habit of consuming. I, I will just speak to the fact that books are not enough. <laughs> um, a huge a huge amount of my research in, in conscious leadership, which is um, in, in my, so thought leaders is like the business with the school that provides, you know, training for people in how to be commercially smart. And then I, I run the Matt Church practice as well, which is me sort of practicing what I preach and have for 30 years. And that's where I publish my books from and deliver my speeches from. When you're in that space, it's really important that you, um, developed flexibility in how you take your ideas to market and where you generate your ideas from. But in one of them, the area of conscious leadership, which is in my Matt Church practice, um, nearly everything I get is podcasts and YouTube. And I think, you know, this speaks to your work, Jonathan, and, and the business that you're in, is I think podcasts are a wonderful form of long-form content creation, long-form journalism, where you get to have nuance and rich experience. And in a world where there's 280 character tweets, used to be 140 character tweets, outrage sound bites, culture wars and identity politics. It's wonderful to um, consume in long format. So I consume stuff on conscious leadership and if it's less than an hour, I'm not that interested. So I want to listen to Rupert Spira for more than an hour. I want to, um, you know, or whoever it might be that I'm connecting with in that space. So and for that to happen, what I need is I need a content consumption strategy, uh, which for me is generally blended. So I'm generally exercising while I do it. Um, uh, and because to take three hours to sit down and listen to three hours, I'm like, can't do that. But I can work out for an hour and a half uh, in my cardio days and can watch and listen to these things. And then I come off and document ideas because when you're running an, uh, a a a practice which is very lean, like not a lot of consultants, just you as the subject matter expert, you have the ability to um, uh, investments of time on you, like health, family. Um, one of the main payoffs is a life by design because I don't have 20 consultants that I'm managing quality assurance for. I've got me and one or maybe two staff whose job is to help me do surgery. And so I like to think like a brain surgeon. I like to set up my practice like a brain surgeon. And uh, subsequently, me being in good health, me having mojo and me being enriched and my mind being enriched by learning, uh, taking a walk at the end of the day at three o'clock, not at seven o'clock, so that I can integrate the experiences I've had from the morning. These are all really important parts of the intentional practice by design where I basically go, I'm the surgeon who needs to be in the best condition to to operate brain surgery and um, instead of the 12-hour days that I see a lot of consultants grinding through. Yeah, interesting. Um, oh, that's something I also tend to do. You know, if I'm on the exercise bike, I'll be watching some video. If I'm washing the dishes, I'll be uh, listening to audio. But sometimes I find it's a bit of a challenge to um, really uh, sort of prioritize or, or just maintain all the inputs and, and have a note-taking system around that. So I'm quite curious yeah, about... Lovely. Yeah, totally. No, it's a it's a continual conversation, like the note-taking conversation. I go, okay, here we go. Let's spend an hour talking about digital gardens and whether the Roam platform is up for that yet. And uh, we're not ready to do that. But, uh, you know, whether it's Evernote or, or, or Notability or whether you've got Roam 
the research app going, which what I love is, uh, and if anybody wants to Google digital uh, gardens, you'll start to explore the idea of um, hyperlinked thoughts because I reckon the challenge, Jonathan, is the, the secret tunnels between ideas and that they're not linear, so they're synaptic. Um, almost like dendrites and synapses, you can feel that structure. And I think that that's actually how sense-making works and I think it's actually how we need to track insights. So they're almost like nodes in a complex adaptive network, but our note-taking technology hasn't kept up with that. And that's why putting things in a PowerPoint slide deck seems redundant. Typing them out in a contiguous scrolling Word document doesn't seem enough. Um, putting them on Evernote and tagging them, as long as you have tag discipline. But tag discipline is like um, receipt discipline. You know, do you take a photo of your receipts and send them to your bookkeeper or through an app? And you, even if you've got the app, do you stop and take the photo when you're, you know, walking out of the bookstore and juggling 10 books? You don't. So there's um, there's also making sure that whatever your capturing strategy is, that you you have that it fits you because they say what's the best note-taking strategy i go the one you use um and and for me it's a moleskin journal handwritten i mean i got everything i got bloody ipads i've got evernote i've got all these things but a lot of my stuff is just i archive them in these um now i do take photos of these and they do go into evernote for tag and search and retrieve but over the years i've found that there is a relationship I have with analog, and it could be my age, right? I'm 53. So there's a relationship I have with analog and something beautiful about the coffee stain that happened on the aeroplane when I was having that idea on descent into a city. Um, and so I actually really enjoy, and so once again, it's not what is the, and this is the same with diaries. There are people who, the minute we went to digital diaries, um, their, their love of their daytimer uh, their love of their hand-based uh, system for tracking their day and productivity almost killed them. And I, I think, and I'll finish on this just quickly, there's a whole generation of kids that will never see photos of themselves. But I'm of the generation where on a rainy afternoon I'd pull a box out from under the bed that had photos of mum and dad before I was born. And I would look through those photos and go, crikey, and then have a conversation with mum. And there's these kids who, because it's all stored on hard drives, are never going to see those pictures or repurpose them. There's a whole generation that have lost that. And we can see the reason why scrapbooking is such a hot trend at the moment is it's people creating an analogue narrative. They're having an engagement with memories. And you go, really? People making photo albums and putting stickers on them? Yeah, you go, fast-growing hobby fast-growing crafting hobby because people, uh, the digital detox and the relationship with the analogue, which is why we paint and why we, we use clay and we draw with charcoal and obfuscate the edges, there's something about the relationship with the experience that the digital can, with all of its efficiency benefits, we can lose an effectiveness benefit. Yet we've captured everything, but we never look at them. Yeah, yeah, that that's that's fair enough. Um, yeah, it's interesting. My my uh, relationship with analog, I've never, I've always found it difficult to like keep a journal or anything like that. But you you mentioned a tool, Rome Research, and there are a bunch of others alternatives to it. I I found that that reduced a lot of the friction I had around journaling or taking notes or thinking through writing. Um, 
And I don't know what it is. Um, and I think there's also a promise about those tools where they match the way people think in terms of relating different thoughts by nodes, which is very promising and sounds great in theory, a little harder to actually really implement it in practice, I find. I'm the same. And yeah. I think it's preliminary and early yeah. days. And but but it's as fundamental as folders in inboxes. So there are two types of people in the world. There are those who archive email, knowing that they can trust the tag and searching of, say, the Google team. Um, and there are those who still put emails in folders. And if you're someone who still puts emails in folders, it's kind of like you're still faxing. Um, and, you know, even talking about email to is like talking about faxing now because there's so many other ways for us to communicate. But this, it's a fundamental shift in trusting the search and retrieval of information. Um, and when you make that shift, it's a little bit like digital photos only and not printing them. There's something gained and something lost. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. Um so, so Matt, I, I feel like we could uh, probably carry on for uh, you know, part two, which we may have to, uh, you know, do on a, at a later time. But um, uh, as we sort of, you know, try to wrap up here, um, can you tell people more about where they can find more of your work? Um, where's the best place to go? Well, all of my books are free at mattchurch.com. That's M-A-T-T-C-H-U-R-C-H.com. So download and read. Um, I'm, I have a principle which says I commit to the committed. So if someone can't be bothered downloading a book and can't be bothered reading it, they probably shouldn't get involved with me. If you are willing to do that, then you're on the right side of, you know, doing hard work and you have the, the disciplines and the commitments for us to work together. And if, if that works, then head over to thoughtleaders.com.au and start to learn a little bit about our foundation program, which is a simple online curriculum, and our business school, which is a very active, vibrant online community, um, and uh, and start to get involved in the process of commercialising what you know. And our, our commitment is to help clever people be commercially smart. We've been doing it for over 25 years, and thousands of graduates have earned from half to one and a half million with one or maybe two staff selling their time 50 to 200 days a year. And so the practice model, which is in the green book, the thought there's practice, you can download and read everything about that process um, before you even get engaged, which I recommend you do, um, is, is a third choice. You know, get a job, you know, start a business or run a practice. It's the third choice and not enough people know about it. Fantastic. Well, th those are some excellent resources. I, thanks a lot, Matt, for sharing that with us. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you. All right. Cheers. Have you ever wondered what it takes to launch a podcast for your own consultancy? If so, you'll definitely want to tune into our sister show, Podcasting for Consultants, which shares our whole playbook on exactly how to launch revenue generating podcast. In order to tune in, all you have to do is search for Podcasting for Consultants on your favorite podcast player. Alternatively, you can also find it on our website at podcastingforconsultants.net.